Yeah. Yeah, old school. That's what I'm talking about. Listen, this ain't for everybody. Some of y'all need to hear this. Huh. I know you're in the trenches fighting, but check it out. I'm going to put it down like this so I can help the saints understand. Everything you're going through is all part of the master plan. Or what? You thought because you got saved, everything was going to be peaches and cream? You better wake up, son. Don't nothing come to a sleeper but a drink. Faith without works is dead. Read your Bible. You know what it says. He who don't work, don't eat. Slackers don't get fed. Huh, yeah. Jesus said, he who puts his hands to the plow looks back the same ain't fit. Some of y'all ain't been in the Christmas five minutes and you about ready to quit. I ain't mad at you. I'm just hitting you with the real. <laughs> if you died for me and I was still tripping, now how you think that make you feel? Check this out. Deep game. This here's deep, huh? Some of y'all ain't sawing nothing but you're studying trying to reach, huh? But after him who's able to possess your father's by his glory. Struggles might be part of your testimony, but it ain't the end of the story. Now the point is that prophesied way back in the day. Choir, sing your hook right here and see if the church can relate. Just left her a message and an email earlier. Let me just reach out to her. 
and uh, I'll be right back with you, buddy. All right. Well, that, that's fine. We can do that, and uh, I promise, you know, in the meantime, we won't say nothing too, too crazy. Matter of fact, I'll go back to Praise Master G, and I'll be right back. I'm getting to the point now when I get to church. I want to ask somebody, did you mess up for you got saved? So they can say yes. I say, you're the one I want to sit with. Because I know you're going to praise the Lord. I don't want to sit with no dude with the shoesy. Who feels like I don't need to lift him up and I already have Well, why you sitting there like you're dead or something? You got your brains on too. You ought to be bumping, jumping, shouting and running on your feet. The second come in, miss me with that attitude. Sweet. You want me to be cool, but I ain't cause I can't. Cause if you only know what he done for me. The things I used to do, how I used to be. I can't lie. I got to testify. I was blind. He opened up my eyes. I know you think I'm fine now, but there was a time. If it hadn't been for God, you'd have lost your mind. Get with this. I don't miss or resist. If the Lord is not slack concerning his promises, I, I feel a shout coming on about now. Other good friend Matthew is on the line here, and Laurie is dialing in right now. Well, all righty then. So maybe you have a doctor to help you out with some of your difficulties today. Oh, well, that'd be a great thing, you know. Well, that'd be two of us. Actually, you need two. That's right. You got me and her. <laughs> oh, wow. <laughs> That would make, that would make our listeners feel that I am desperately in need of some <laughs> some sort. Well, that of would attention. make two of us. That, yeah, as they say in Gestalt therapy, it takes one to know one, though. You know, so if you're working with it, you got to know it. Thank you. So, well, let's see. Is Lori here? Is uh, she arrived? I'm right here. Hi, Lori. Oh, Hi. You was listening to uh, Matthew's aimless batter. <laughs> <laughs> it's usually it's okay. aimless. You you have to worry if it gets focused. 
Only when it gets focused is it dangerous. Oh, Laurie, okay. thank you for being with us today. I'd like to introduce you, and then we've got a whole bunch of questions to ask you, okay? That would be great. We have today Laurie Hallman, Ph.D. She's a psychoanalyst with specialized clinical training in infant, parent, child, adolescent, and adult psychotherapy. She has been on the faculties of New York University, and the Society for Psychoanalytic Study and Research. She's written extensively on parenting for various publications, including the Psychoanalytic Study of the Child, the International Journal of Infant Observation, the Inner World of the Mother, Newsday's Parents and Children magazine, Long Island Parent. She also wrote her popular column, Parental Intelligence at Moms Magazine, and has been a parenting expert for numerous publications, such as Good Housekeeping. She currently writes for Active Family Magazine out of San Francisco and blogs for Huffington Post. Her new book is Unlocking Parental Intelligence, Finding Meaning in Your Child's Behavior. We will give you more information about how to locate this book and Dr. Hallman at the end of the show, but we are here particularly today to talk about unlocking parental intelligence, finding meaning in your child's behavior. Dr. Hallman, thank you so much for joining us. Um, It's a pleasure. I think that um, there, there are very probably many, many people out there listening to us or will listen in the future, in the archived versions of this show, which we put on right out of for finished, who have mm-hmm. children who are struggling to understand their children. And it sounds like you have uh, uh, theories and have worked with um, how to understand children's behavior all the way from infant all the way up to middle or late adolescent. Yeah. Um, I, I just want to ask you uh one quick question here uh, to start, and then we can talk more seriously about your book and what you want to share with us. At what age would you say adolescence is over? That's a really good question. Adolescence. Do you hear is... that? Wait a minute, Laurie. Laurie, did you hear that, Lamont? <laughs> yeah, but I was want to ask him what. <laughs> <laughs> what age can you start beating kids butt when they don't listen to you? Never. Laurie, you get Laurie, you gotta yes. watch out for him. He he's, okay, a, he's a little bit weird when it comes to but I'm sorry, let's go back to my great question. When does adolescence end? Okay, well you can think of adolescence as early, middle and late adolescence. And late adolescence is kind of um jarring up against young adulthood and so in numbers Adolescence ends at 19, but there are certainly many young adults, um, 20 to 23, you know, we can pick any number we want, who are still working at adolescence, and there are certainly adults working at adolescence. But in theory, um, it ends when you end high school and begin college. Okay. Great. So I'm sorry to interrupt you, um, Lamont, but I, I didn't think that uh, Dr. Holman was going to go for the when you beat the butt of the child very easily. So. <laughs> she sounded like she didn't believe in disciplined children, so definitely I want to uh-huh. talk about that. Because, oh, yeah. Uh, and, and 
in our age group, or should I say, in my age group, seem like we had. Excuse me. What age group is that? Sixties, which I was a fifties okay. baby. Okay. You know, um, our parents definitely believed in you know uh, physical discipline, and even even I remember as far back as in junior high school. When we got in trouble, you know, we went to the PE instructor, and he pulled out the paddle, and we got swats. And then from yeah. there, we went home, you know, and we got it again. But just looking back, you know, we had less gang violence. We had um, less disrespect in the schools for our educators. We uh-huh. had less of all of that. So it kind of makes me wonder, um, did sure that have that- something? Excuse me? Are you sure there really was less? There was that there was more respect, or was there was there more fear? Well, respect and fear—that's uh, a good question. I—I I, I guess I did both with my parents. I—I I respect them, but I was also afraid of what would happen if I violated their instructions. So I guess yeah, that kicked that, in the fear that's, that's part. That's really important because the word discipline actually comes from the word disciple, which is a student, a learner. Mm-hmm. And discipline is about teaching. And so we have to think about what, how we react and what we do as parents. Are we actually teaching a lesson, or are we just using our authority to kind of um, bully our kids into doing what mm-hmm. we do? You know, right. sometimes, uh, I mean, physical harm teaches to solve problems using a physical reaction. So we have to decide if that's what we want to teach our kids. Um, mm-hmm. You know, it doesn't mean that that's what you do now or did if you were a parent, but um, it does teach that. It, it's, it's aggressive behavior. Um, so I think we have to think about if we use physical um, dis- discipline, I'll use the word you're using, um, mm-hmm. does our child really silently resent the parent who did that and listen because they don't want it to happen again, but um, are they teaching aggression, actually? So it's, it's, okay. it's a lot more complicated than it looks. Yeah, because I was going to ask you at that point, what happens in a situation where uh, the parents don't discipline the child at all and the child just totally disrespects everybody? Yeah, well, when we talk about parental intelligence, we are going to be talking about discipline, but of a different type, because we're going to be talking about teaching our children, and we're going to be talking about listening to our children, and them listening to us, so that there's an open dialogue where we can understand and read their behavior, and they can tell us what's really on their minds, why they did what they did in PE, for example. You know, what what were they struggling with? And so it becomes a two-way street where the parent is still an authority and respected as an authority because they are older, wiser, have more experience in life. Um, yet at the same time, they are prone to try to understand what's in their child's mind so they do know how to react. So how... What kind of definition would you give us of parental intelligence? The definition I give is in the subtitle. It's finding meaning in your child's behavior. The concept okay. is that behavior is an action that is sending a message. 
when a child, for whatever reasons we discover, um, can't speak out about what's bothering them or troubling them, they act to demonstrate what it is. And it's our job as parents to learn how to decode what the message is that they're demonstrating. Um, it sounds hard, but it's actually not hard once you learn it, and it becomes a way of life. Um, so the definition is right there in the title, Finding Meaning mm-hmm. in Child's Behavior. And I well, have five tools that show you how, when I give an illustration, how parents um, use these five steps to understand their child's behavior and why he did what he did. So when you say finding meaning in the child's behavior, um, you're, I, I would imagine, and you'll correct me if I'm wrong, but I, I would imagine you're saying some very specific and relevant meaning that's very, uh, if a parent learns how to listen to it, they're going to really learn something useful about relating to their child. Absolutely. As, oppo- as opposed to just uh, being belligerent or nasty or, or uh, disconnected or something that, that the average parent would think doesn't particularly have a lot of meaning. I'm guessing that, but I'd really like to hear what you think about it. Yeah, I, I, I think you're right. You know, they think, oh, my kid's a bad kid. He's nasty. He doesn't listen to mm-hmm. me. Um, he shows no respect. I have to say something ten times before he goes and brushes his teeth. You know, that kind of thing. Um, but actually, the child has all kinds of feelings, and so does the parents. And those are discovered and understood and resolved. So you don't have, you know, when you do the same thing over and over and over and it doesn't work, you know you're not catching on to what's really going on, um, whether you're the child or the parent. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I, I want parents to know that I have trouble with the phrase bad behavior because behavior is really complex and has meaning. Children aren't bad. They're complicated human beings. So if your child speaks or acts in a negative way, in my view, he or she is not a bad child but a distressed child. So if your child hits, has temper tantrums, is a fussy baby, has a messy room, is withdrawn, can't focus, you might feel frustrated, angry, disappointed, but you're distressed and the child is distressed. And if you erase the word bad from your vocabulary and think of distress instead, it really changes your outlook. Um, and that is what I do when a parent comes in or parent or parents come in um, with a problem that, that they're struggling with with their child. And they usually don't come in until they've been struggling for a long time. And they are at their wit's end. They don't know what to do. And many blame themselves. Many don't. Then blame the child. But I try to take blaming out of the equation and step, put in, you know, delete blame and insert understanding and um, it's it's really quite effective and by the time the parents leave from the very first session they are oriented to saying okay so we're going to be working with Dr. Holman to figure out the meaning behind so and so's X behavior um, okay. so, so that's, that's the approach and it really works for parents of all ages at all stages of the kids development um, I see parents from all kinds of backgrounds, and well, uh, I 
I had um, I've got a couple of very specific uh, examples that I wanted to ask you questions about, but I'm wondering, would you like to tell us uh, uh, sort of briefly what the the five steps are first, and then we can go back and ask you uh, our specific questions about parents and children, or how would you like to do yeah, that? Yeah, what I'd like to do is give you an illustration of a parent using the five steps so you okay. see how it e- evolves. Um, right. Is that okay? Yeah, um, that's good. The first step is called stepping back. And the, I think the best way to learn about stepping back is through a story. I think parents, like kids, learn best best through storytelling. So I'm going to tell you about an identical twin I'll call Clive, who began hitting his brother, Ari, in kindergarten. They were six years old. Clive was a good kid, basically, and the teacher was very surprised that he was hitting his brother. And so she talks to him, and he apologizes dutifully, but he continues hitting. She tries a punishment of taking away the privilege of painting, which is his favorite activity, but that fails too. And so she calls the parents in, who admit that the hitting is happening at home as well. So the parents decide to use parental intelligence, and the first step is called stepping back, which means beginning the search for meaning behind the hitting to get eventually to a solution. Stepping back means slowing down, pausing, taking no action with your child. And I know this is very counterintuitive to what we were talking about before because parents are taught to act immediately, but I'm saying the opposite. Pause, take no action with your child. If something's dangerous, obviously you have to stop it but I'm not giving that as an example in this case. Um, The hitting was just like a slap on the arm and, oh, I'm sorry, and his brother was a sweet kid, and they were actually very close, and he didn't retaliate. Um, But stepping back gives you time to think and review the behavior. You go over what your child did, when he did it, and you look for a sequence. You track the behavior, trying to understand it. And what's important is that you actually suspend your judgment as you accept that what happened may be meaningful. It means suspending judgment, not only about your child's behavior, but also about your parenting behavior. It gives you permission Mm -hmm. to not know what to do, to question your assumptions, and realize the situation isn't understood. And I want to highlight that. It gives you permission to not know what to do. You're allowed to have time to think this through. Uh, After all, if you don't understand something, how in the world can you know what to do about it? So Mm -hmm. when their parents taking their time, it has a calming effect on everyone. So you're already achieving something even though they're hitting. To return to Clive and Dad, stepping back led Clive's dad to realize that the hitting started after he began taking long business trips, and he wondered if that had anything to do with it. He also realized that Clive hit his brother after Dad spent time with Ari alone. After a bike ride with Ari, Clive hit Ari. After Dad watching TV together, Clive hit Ari. So all that was learned just from stepping back. And it naturally leads to step two, which is called self-reflecting. Self-reflecting entails thinking about your feelings, your reactions to the situation. Clive's dad realized that since Clive was an infant, he was less robust than his twin. Actually, the babies were born, and Clive was put in the NICU because he wasn't thriving well enough. And Ari was a very robust baby. So the mother took the took a hand at working with the more fragile child, and Dad took a back seat to his care, leaving Clive to his wife. And as the years rolled by, that kind of stuck, and Dad was closer to Ari. 
Reflecting on its feelings in the present situation, Dad realized that six-year-old Clive was distant before and after his business trips. And Dad faced his feelings. He actually was feeling rebuffed and rejected by Clive. And this was a lot for Dad to take in. He wasn't used to really attending to his feelings. Mm -hmm. But he felt rejected, and he wondered if that was a clue to how Clive felt too, which is very key here, that your feelings can lead you to understand your child's feelings. So when parents come to grips with how they feel, those feelings are often a clue to how their child may feel, and they become interested in the meaning behind behavior. So Dad continued to self-reflect, and he thought back naturally. You you start thinking about your own lives, you know, just like Lamont did, and Clive's dad had six brothers, and they were a rough housing bunch, and Clive was not like that. Dad began to feel ashamed that he resented Clive for not being more of a super outgoing type guy like himself. He was much more ready now to believe that the hitting had meaning, and he was ready to take the next step, which is step three, understanding your child's mind, which is really the crux of parental intelligence. It opens Dad's eyes to what is Clive's point of view about his life at the time. So understanding... Mm -hmm. Child's point of view is crucial, and what happened here was one day when Clive was supposed to be doing his reading homework, Dad happened to see that he wasn't doing it and said he was making a picture on the computer. And Dad was really surprised because he didn't even know his child knew how to use Microsoft Paint and uh, do a picture on the computer. And in the book you can see the picture, but I can briefly de- depict it for you, that Clive is there's a boy sitting at a table doing his homework. And his back is to a tall man who's his father walking away. So uh, Dad says, can I take a peek at your painting? And Clive shuts the computer and he says, I can't show you. You'll be mad at me. And Dad says, I don't get mad at you, actually. I promise I won't be mad about a painting. So Clive takes the chance and he does deep down trust his dad. So he shows him the picture. And he said, Dad says, I see you and me. What am I doing? Can you tell me? And Clive says, you're going away for a long time. Dad says, Mm -hmm. okay, where am I going? Now Dad's curious and he's getting a little worried. And Clive says, I don't know. You're going away because I'm bad. My teacher thinks I'm bad. So Clive jumps on his dad's lap, something he really never does. That's more of a mommy thing. And Dad feels really close to his son now. And he says, why does the teacher think you're bad? And Clive says, because I hit Ari. That's really bad. And you went away, far away. Dad says, Clive, do you think I went away because you hit Ari? And Clive says, no, you went away because I can't read. You like smart boys like Ari who can read. Now Dad understood what was on Clive's mind. I mean, it was a really convoluted six-year-old belief. And he knew Mm -hmm. he had to clarify very carefully he says, Clive, I went away to make money for all of us. I go on business trips, not because you don't read yet. I never go away because I don't like you. I love you. Lots of kids don't read in kindergarten. It's not a race to see who can read first. You're such a great son. So this was a real revelation as to what was on Clive's mind. Then Mm -hmm. step four is understanding your child's development. Now, for Clive, this wasn't too important because his development was on course. He made friends, he socialized well, he um, really did keep up with most of the stuff in kindergarten, and he was just going at his own pace. But some kids do have problems in development, and then it's imperative to understand their delays so you you don't expect what isn't possible, which lowers their self-esteem. 
So I'll go to step five, problem solving. And at this point, Dad knew Clive's mixed-up conclusions, which had led him to be jealous of his brother's relationship with his father and his belief that his father was disappointed in him, even mad at him for not knowing how to read. So there was no more, this is the interesting point, there was no more talk of hitting because it just stopped. It vanished. He certainly was never a bad kid. He was confused and distressed, but really a great kid. So the hitting stopped because the child felt understood, and he now knew he and his dad had had a connection, and the hitting had a great deal of meaning, and dad got to the bottom of it. So the bigger underlying problem had become apparent, Clive and dad's relationship. This is what happens with parental intelligence. You find the overarching problem. The hitting was the behavior that was the red flag that something was wrong, but the underlying Mm -hmm. problem was the relationship with his father and his misbelief that dad didn't like him because he couldn't read. So dad's problem solving was that he began spending more time with Clive, and when he engaged him with his brother, they did it as a team, not a competition. And they spent, and he spent more time alone with Clive as they got to know each other better. And that was the result of parental intelligence. So it was pretty amazing stuff. That's, That's a good story. Yeah. Good story. So those steps all seem very um, sensible. Um, yeah. That's a good Understandable. Point. Sensible, uh, fairly li- not fairly logical um, steps, and the I think the hard part is getting past step one. Yeah, yeah. I'm thinking that same true. thing. True, but once yeah. you do, it the rest flows. You know, it sounds like it's got a lot to do. You think in my busy life, how do I have time to understand my child? But that is what we we have time for. That really is more important than most other things, and we have to make time for it. In my belief, that's not my belief. Um, you know, I, I have two sons, and they're adults now, and they were raised with parental intelligence. And when I, when I was a young mother and hadn't coined the term, um, but this this approach was natural to me. And I must tell you, I know it will be hard to believe, but I honestly never punished these two little boys. Um, we talked about everything, and we still do today. You know, they're in their late thirties, and I'm very close to both of them. Um, and they have become very, they've always been industrious, but they've become very empathic adults. My oldest son has two little boys, I have two grandchildren, and they're in kindergarten and grade three, and I see how my son and his daughter-in-law, who I feel like is my daughter, actually, um, treat their, their son, and they do the same thing. So it starts going through the, the generations. Um, my son really makes it a point to understand what's going on when their little ones have um, struggles and problems. And they're not perfect kids. Um, and they shove each other sometimes and um, argue. And they they're kind of have different personalities, so they can rub up against each other. But I see that the way they solve the problems is by helping them understand what's going on in the other in their brother's mind you know mm-hmm. uh, one of the kids the older one um, is a very uh, independent child and he concentrates really well and he likes to work on projects and he, you know you, you could give him Legos and he'd sit there for three hours doing it the other one 
um, is equally as bright and industrious, but he is much more of a um, child who needs somebody all the time. You know, he always wants a friend. He always wants a parent. He likes to be with somebody. He's not a he's not a solitary uh, mm-hmm. learner uh, like the older one is capable of. And so they argue about that. Xander from Alexander, his name, they call him Xander. Um, he um, might be working on something, and Eddie comes up to him and says, you know, play with me, play with me. And Xander tries to thoughtfully understand, um, Eddie, I know you want me to play with you, but I'm working on this now. I'll play with you in half an hour. And so they ha- they work on that all the time because mm-hmm. their personalities clash in that way. Um, but they talk about it. You know, they use words unbelievably like compromise. You know, you see that come out of a little one's mouth and you can't believe it. Um, but when your parents talk that way, that's how the kids start to talk. Well, I have a question for you. I, I don't work with children. Okay. I work with adults. I'm a, I'm a life coach and I have clients, but they're all adults. I have a couple who have had a difficulty dealing with a, a child who I think is five now. And every night, this little boy, as once they put him to bed, gets up and goes and gets in bed with his parents. Yeah. Every night. Uh-huh. And interrupts their sleep. Yeah. And they get up, they take him back, put him in bed. Uh-huh. He gets up, he comes back. Okay. Now, they got some <laughs> consultation at one point from some people who apparently, you know, are very successful at this and advertise themselves as experts and they said okay dad what you have to do is when he comes as you say sweetheart you have to go back to bed you get him take him by the hand put him back in the bed and you do that as many times as it takes yes well the father said to me one time he said i'm exhausted last time i quit at a hundred Oh my God! Man, that that kid don't want no more siblings. The he kid, didn't get the memo. He said my son, he said my son was laughing. He thought it was a game. He wore me completely out. Oh, and he uh, said I don't know what to do. Yeah. So yeah. I'm very curious about how you would approach a converse. I mean, this okay, kind I'm of situation. Working with a, a, I I don't want to betray my patient, um, but I've worked with kids who do this at even older ages, and sometimes. The kids um, really never learn to sleep in their own beds. The parents Mm -hmm. both work. They don't see their kids a lot. The kids miss the parents. The parents miss the kids. And nighttime is filled with homework, dinner, and a little TV and going to sleep. And so when it comes to going to sleep, the kids and the parents, the parents are collude in this, really. They want to be together. And they know it goes against what health says. You have to get sleep so that you can function well. But they like the closeness, the physical closeness. They like uh, being together. Sometimes the darkest, saddest thoughts come out at night when your defenses are down and you're tired. And this is a kind, somewhat of a common problem. The basic notion that the consultant said, which was don't let him come in your bed, walk him back to his bed, is correct, but it wasn't working, um, obviously. And what, you know, if I had these parents, I would want to know a lot more. 
I would want to know, did he ever sleep in his own bed? In other words, as an infant up to age three. I think from, I think from the time this child was very small, he was in and out of his parents' bed. Okay, okay. And well, including, including often what would happen is one of the parents would end up sleeping with the child. Yeah. Either in their bed or the child's bed. Yes, yes. That's very, that's often. Just as an aside, sometimes there's a marital problem, and that gets gets mixed up with the parenting problem, and so the parents are have not resolved their own need to sleep together and have intimacy, and the the, the child is almost a decoy that falls into the mess. Um, but that is an aside. But in a full consultation, I would explore the marriage as well. Um, well, but you, what, you what they just need put your do, finger on what I think the issue is. I did. But I, I yeah, you did. And I, I, um, I was wondering, you know, if I didn't give you any information like that, you know, what you would point to. Because, you know, as you look, I, I'm, I'm totally on board with you that, that children are not bad. And I think there's a reason for everything they do, and I think that the parents teach them what's okay and what's not. Yes, I agree. I agree, and they really and do. Yes, I like the word decoy. Uh huh. I think that's a wonderful word to use in this situation because it makes a lot of sense to me about that. Now, the question I would have is, that's a lot of perseverance, hundred times yeah, well, in a night. Yeah, well, I so that the parents somehow. You know, kids are not only listening to what our words are, but they're watching our faces and our expressions. Mm-hmm. And when the dad, let's say, could be the mom, uh, mother, um, takes the child back to the bed, does the child really know firmly what their expectations are? And it sounds like he, that he doesn't. In other yeah. words, the parents have to firmly, gently, but firmly say, you're five years old, you're old enough to sleep in your own bed, I want you to learn how to do this because you're going to feel more grown up and more independent, and that's what I want for you. At five years old, you know how to put yourself back to sleep if you wake up. But you're saying that the parent who does that has to really mean it. Has to really mean it. And and be very clear about their expectations. Because I think on occasion... This child, they would close their own bedroom door, and the child would just come and sit in front of it and cry. Yeah, see, he's, he's until he's somebody really, came for him. Yeah, he's struggling with separation anxiety, and I wonder, does he when he goes to school in the morning, does he go easily, um, or does he? That's struggle a good question. No, um, I think on occasion it's been hard. Yeah, yeah. For him to let go, the child. You know, yeah. I would have. Well, Laurie, I want to ask ahead, a question. I want to ask a question, Laura. What happens with these uh, mothers, and I find them or see them so many many times in the supermarket or in the mall when they have these unruly kids and they're talking to their child, and the child is telling them to shut up, stop, don't, uh, and and they're trying their best, don't do that, stop, quit, listen, come here, and the child is telling them, don't tell me to stop and just raise their hand like they want to hit them and stuff. What yeah, happens yeah. with those parents? Are they talking to them at home, or the child is still not listening? I, I think that the, that somehow the parent has lost their um, 
their authorities. The, the generations are getting blurred. And mm-hmm. the child doesn't feel ashamed of talking to the parent that way, and especially in public. I mean, you're giving a public ex- ex- uh, example, which is even harder than a private one. And, again, the expectations have to be clear. And I would tell this parent to not allow two words of this to happen in the supermarket. I'd leave the supermarket. In other words, that's, you can't problem solve in a supermarket with people all around you. You can't find okay, out what wait, and, and you leave the supermarket and then what? You, got, you get in the car, and if the child's calm, you can talk about what, start talking about what happened, but probably they're not, and they might even throw a temper tantrum right in the store. I'd go home, settle down, go about your business until everybody's calm, and then sit and talk about what happened and make, a, make plans for every time you go in public and what's expected so that the child knows right off the bat, this, that in our family, we don't try to solve problems in public, and we talk nicely to each other in front of others. And if we don't, we leave because that's not a way, it's, it, we don't have the space and time to understand what's going on. So you wait till the right moment when things are calmer. That's the stepping back. And you discuss with the child the problem, which is um, speaking in a nasty way to your parent in public. That is, that's defined as a problem for the child. And that's okay. that you do that. You define it as a problem to be solved. And then the child sees it narrowed down. You focus down on that is the problem. Then you are, in that way, you are stepping back. You're not reacting. You're thinking. And you're getting, you want our, we want our kids to think, to learn how to think in complex ways. And this way you're showing the child that you're going to think and he's gonna, you expect him to think. And you're going to step back and search for the meaning behind that kind of talk. Something's going on. Um, and then you go through the process, and in some way, this child resents the parent or wants everything he sees in the store or feels that things aren't fair or things aren't just. I, I don't know what, what, you'd, you know what would evolve, but you start learning what it's about. And when you do, the child and the parent are really transformed into people who talk to each other like human beings should. And well, you're talking about you're talking about younger children, and I, I think that's important. I want to ask you if we're talking about, say, a teenager, yes. anywhere from 14 to 17. Yes. I I live in a, in a very affluent uh, part of the country, and educated, affluent parents and their children often have certain sense of entitlement. I'm sure you've encountered this. Yes. Um, and not that much respect yeah. for authority. Mm-hmm. And so here's a 15, 16, 17-year-old who is uh, causing difficulty in interactions with a parent. Um, similar kinds of belligerence. This is what I want. You can't tell me right. how to do things. Um, what, and the parent comes to you. There's been years of already entrainment there about <laughs> yes. what this child has an attitude about. I'm wondering how you approach that. 
Okay. You just slapped the, the uh, parents around and said <laughs> Families I've dealt with where there are a lot of kids, you know, three to five kids in a family, in a family and very aggressive children. And um, it's really taking on a task from my point of view because the parents do not know how to deal with the aggression. The aggression is really very serious sometimes. And the parents are so used to it that they, and the kids are so used to it, they think it's the norm. You know, they, this is what they know about family life. Um, and well, I have, a, I have a client who tells me stories about uh, a child who is about 15, and when she doesn't get what she wants, she periodically throws a tantrum. So there's a... Yeah, yeah. Uh, and, you know, why, the why parents is it usually, walk on eggshells Why is it usually... Why is it usually with with parents that decide to be friends with their kids opposed to being parents? Yeah, they they don't know how to draw the boundary lines with the generations, um, and a lot you know it's so natural to go back to um, this the self the self reflecting step that parent feels um, uh, parent feels unloved by their child they feel like their child doesn't look at them well and is trying to ingratiate themselves with the child. Mm-hmm. Um, okay. And it, it, it doesn't work. What, again, they have yeah. to define the problem. When you talk to me that way, it hurts my feelings and it makes me angry at you. And I want us to solve this problem because it's been going on too long and we have to have a new way of speaking. If you go and talk like this to your teachers or in other people's houses, you're going to see that they're going to look at you like something's wrong because something is wrong. We're, this house is not filled with security and safety. We're hurting each other, and we have to learn how not to hurt each other but to help each other. So let's talk about that. What do you feel when you tell me I should have whatever I want because the kid down the street does? What are you actually feeling? And the kids stop and li- and they are surprised that their parent wants to know what they're feeling. I want to know your opinion. I want to know your point of view. I want you to tell me what you intend when you talk to me that way. I really want to listen. And then you really have to listen. No kidding around. You don't interrupt your child. You let them talk and talk and talk and elicit more detail. What do you mean when you say that? Tell me more about it. And then you find so, out. So that what if what if the uh, answer is I'm angry because you and my dad got divorced? That of course is a big one. Then tell me more about it. You know, depending on how old they were and what what the situation is, what gets me what gets you mad at at daddy and me being divorced? And they'll probably say I don't like living in two houses. I don't mm-hmm. like daddy has a girlfriend. She thinks yep. she's my mother. And mm-hmm. I don't like her telling me what to do. I mean, this, right. this is wonderful stuff. He's really sharing um, what he's going through. It's very hard to live in two houses. Can you imagine living in two houses, having clothes in both houses, carrying your stuff from one place to the other, not forgetting where you're going mm-hmm. after school, who's picking you up, who's home for you, who isn't? It's it's very it's a very difficult situation. And if, if when kids start to really talk about it then you can really start to work out, hopefully with your ex-spouse, how to calm things down and make things a routine so that the kids know what's going on. Some of these kids well, I've often wondered, 
about uh, this situation, which is uh, there are a number of couples, as I'm sure you're also aware, that decide to get divorced, but they were um, they had the kind of relationship where they really didn't have much conflict, and so they finally decide to get divorced, and the children or a child, one of one of however many there are, is shocked. Yes, yes, didn't yes. see it coming. A real outward fighting. Uh huh. And then really gets upset about that. Yeah. Well, I. I and remember- it generates a lot of behavior that's difficult to deal with. And I was just wondering. So there's a lot of different ways we could approach this, but I was wondering if uh, sometimes I have couples, you know, they say they never fight in front of the kids. And, I, and I, I'm i always a little bit uncomfortable with that because mm-hmm. if they never show the children their anger, their upset, number one, yeah. the children don't understand how to deal with it in a constructive way. But number two, if they do end up in a divorce, the child's, I would say the child's reality gets pretty much turned upside down. I, I agree. I agree. You, not only that, even though divorce is so common, they feel like they're the only one, even if yeah. everyone else around them is getting divorced. Mm-hmm. And they feel like they're different. And suddenly they yeah. feel like they don't belong anywhere and mm-hmm. um, nothing is familiar. And they immediately worry, about, no matter how old, about their own sense of security and safety. Mm-hmm. And parents don't realize that they actually worry about their safety. You know, well, who's going to be there for me? You know, right. when um, my girlfriend breaks up with me, who do I tell? Um, mm-hmm. uh, who Who's going to take me to the baseball game? Is anybody going to come to the baseball game? You know, right. what? like you said, their whole world is upside down, and they don't know about the, the, the actual details from when they wake up to when they go to sleep. Well, let me ask you this. Um, at what age do you think it's appropriate to share with the child mm-hmm. some of the reasons that divorce occurred? It depends on what the reasons are, of course. But um, I think that you could say, depending on what the Well, if, let's say the child is 15 or 16, okay? I'm, okay. I, I think you would give a 5-year-old a different answer than you would a 15-year-old. Yes. Um Let's say that the parents look like they're doing very well, but actually mm-hmm. one is having an affair and has almost has a second family and nobody knows about it. Um, and you could tell the child that, um, let's say I'm the father, mommy and I are friendly and we're cheerful with each other, but we really don't have much in common anymore. And although as... This is really important, actually. I'm always your parent. I never stop being your parent. No matter what you mm-hmm. do, I never stop mm-hmm. being your parent. But married people sometimes can stay friends even, but they don't want to be married to each other day and night anymore. And that's what's happened with Mommy and me. And we want to be with other grown-ups and not live in the same house together anymore. So what if the child at that point says, well, that's not a good enough reason, and you don't care about me, and if you cared about me, you wouldn't get divorced? Yeah, and you you emphasize with the child, I know it's hard. It feels like we're letting you down, and in some ways we are letting you down. We're surprising you and not giving you what you're used to and what you expect of us, and we're really sorry about that. Um, 
but we don't want you to live in a house that's full of anger and resentment either. So Mommy and I have decided that we're not going to live together anymore. I'm Mm. really sorry that it hurts you, and I'm going to continue to talk with you about it so that we can make it work out the best way we possibly can. You know, tell me more about what you're thinking. There's always that sentence, tell me more, because you want the child to have that connection with you. And Mm -hmm. if you say, tell me more, give me more detail, what is going to change that's going to be hard for you, you're actually creating more of a bond with your child. Right. And that's what's going to get you through this, the bond. If you can get them to communicate with you and keep listening. Yeah, Yeah, I hear you. Am I? Hello? Yeah. I'm sorry. I, I lost yeah, I'm here. I think I, I was just listening. Uh-huh. Okay. I just wondered if you had a question. I was kind of dominating with my questions here. But yeah, now I, I have all my was, problems and my know, clients I was solved. So to, I'm, you know, I was listening to because after, you know, doing this show for nine years, we've talked to so many people with different uh-huh. parenting issues. And, and I think one of the most that I hear the most is, you know, the parents that – try to be friends with their kids and then the kids end up having totally no respect for the parent. The parent is hanging out with the child, partying with the child, and then when it gets out of hand... You don't feel really safe then because you want to know you can depend on a grown-up who's responsible and Mm -hmm. um, safe for you. You know, in this election season, you haven't brought it up, but I, I think I will that there's, um, the election season has raised a lot of anxiety for many adults and their kids and teens. And um, with, uh, with Mr. Trump winning, it's important for us to be mindful of the uncertainty that is now in the world. Mm-hmm. And right. young kids mimic, tend to mimic their parents' views, but teenagers yes. have their own and their own views. And it's really important that because of the uncertainty now, day by day, we're you know waiting and hearing what this big word change actually means because it hasn't been defined very well. And the parents, the kids are watching their parents' expressions. They're listening to them, talk to each other. They're noticing if they're anxious. They're seeing how much they do or don't watch the news. And this is, the, the kids are absorbing this. And it's mm-hmm. important for the parents to really talk to their children, those who are interested and involved, and a lot of them are, a lot of them are, um, as to how they feel about having this new president. And, um, again, the talking and the listening is what's going to get us through this, regardless of which side you were on. Um that the but the parent the kids need to know, like you were saying, Lamont, that their parent is a thinking parent, a responsible parent, one who is knowledgeable and then they follow suit and they want to be knowledgeable as well. That's scary, Laurie. Yep, it's a big responsibility. Because every time I turn on the news I just see the Hatfields and the McCoys. Uh huh. It is scary. It's very scary. 
scary times, scary times. Well, hopefully uh, it will be possible for Matthew and I to continue to come on here for the next 30 years, and hopefully we could uh, send a message and hope to educate some, and even if we teach something to one to help benefit uh, their life in some kind of way, at least we feel like we've done something positive. Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, just what we're doing today. We're, you know, we're talking about our views and the different views and trying to sort them out. That's what we want to do with our children. But from the point of view, is you're giving me, um, you're kindly giving me respect for my ideas, and I hope I'm, I seem to be doing the same for you. So that that is the way that we respect each other's authority and expertise. And um, we want our children to view us that way. Absolutely. Absolutely. Namon, are we close to the time where we need to let Laurie talk about her website and her book? Absolutely. I think we have. Uh, yes. Yes, we are. I got cut two, three minutes left, and we'll give it to Lori so you can tell all the people how to get in touch with you, go get your book, and and uh, we'll give you, our, give you our, our address so you can send our autographed copy. And um... <laughs> He likes those autographs more. He collects them, I think. Uh-huh. Uh-huh. Well, if you like them, have the person's name in it. <laughs> Laurie, would you share um, your information with our audience, please? Sure. The easiest way, there are different ways you can get the book. The simplest is just to go on Amazon, and there it is. Uh, You can also go to Barnes & Noble. Um, I'm going to give you my website because if you go on my website, you can just click on the book, and it will take you right to the Amazon site. And also you can contact me if you have any questions. Um, it's uh, Lori, L-A-U-R-I-E, Holman, H-O-L-L-M-A-N, Ph.D. dot com. It's Lori Holman, Ph.D. dot com. That's my website. And there's a contact uh, tab, and you can uh, write me a message, ask me a question. Um, anybody who's listening, if you have a problem with your child and you want to know about it or you read the book and you have a question about something you read in the book, um, the book is filled with... Um, there are eight stories of parents using parental intelligence from infancy to age 17. And so you might read a certain chapter that hits you in a certain way and you want to tell me about it, I'd love to hear. Um, just send me a, a message and I'll email you back. Um, and so it's very easy to get the book in paperback, audio, or um, ebook. Um, and it's, it's easy. It, it's complicated stuff but easy reading it sounds contradictory but that's what I've been told um, and it can really change the tenor of your household and Great. it's kind of like my gift to you I enjoy my children and my mission is for everyone else to enjoy their children as well and to feel respected and loved and to love and you hopefully get that from reading Unlocking Parental Intelligence wonderful well, Laurie, we thank you so much you. for being with us. Thank you. And and we did. I definitely learned something from listening to you today on our show. And I'm gonna go outside and unlock the trunk and let my kids out right now. <laughs> <laughs> well, please hurry. <laughs> <laughs> I hope it's not in the sun. <laughs> and, uh, Shall I be able to get 
a link to the the um, our conversation? Yes, yes, ma'am. Yes, ma'am. It'll be available to you in about two minutes, and it'll be available worldwide, <laughs> same amount of time. Okay. So you'll email me the link. Yes, ma'am. Great. Thank you very much. I'll put it on my website so other people can listen. Great. Wonderful. All right. And well, thank you so thank much you again, Lamont. It was great being with you too, Lamont. I hope you have right. a great rest of your day. As well, I wish Bye. you the same. Bye bye. Okay, buddy. Bye bye. Bye bye. Can I play? Can I play a play? Come back next week, same time, two thirty PST. Hey, boys, Matthew and Lamont. You know what we do? Try to help the world, save the world. That's our mission. <laughs>